I'm Devin Higgins, and welcome to episode three of the first season of Skull Sessions. Before I ever wanted to be a journalist, I just really wanted to be a storyteller. Some of the fondest memories of my early childhood were the hours I spent developing stories in my head for all my toys. That fondness translated to writing stories as a student, playing role-playing games with my friends, and finding new stories and characters to follow in comic books and video games. British author Anthony Johnston followed a similar route, and his passion for writing has given him a career that spanned nearly two decades. A self-professed genre writer, Anthony also hasn't allowed himself to be pigeonholed in one medium. It's why his work spans traditional novels, but also comics and video games. And while you may not have heard of Anthony's work, I'm willing to bet you've seen it. How do I know? Because if you're a movie fan, then odds are you've checked out a little end of the Cold War story he wrote called The Coldest City, that's better known as 2017's Atomic Blonde, starring Charlize Theron. We talk about how that process went for Anthony, as well as how he found his voice as a kid growing up outside Birmingham, how making video games is harder than making movies, and how making stories unique can involve little more than a genre-bending twist, and what the best thing any fledgling writer can do is both be organized and willing to learn. Thanks for joining me for my third Skull Session with multimedia author Anthony Johnston. I have a slight bit of a confession to make to you because as good at geography as I was as a kid, I for some reason got Birmingham confused with like Liverpool and Manchester and the cities in the north. I didn't realize it was kind of equidistant in the middle, which it's literally in an area called the Midlands. Yes. Right. <laughs> and which I guess in some ways is good because if I had thought about it that way, it could have quickly devolved because I know up, up north, that's that's Yorkshire territory and this could very quickly devolve into a Monty Python skit. But my my question for you is, because you and I are of similar age and growing up in Birmingham, the first thing I knew as an American about Birmingham was that Black Sabbath came from Birmingham. And yes, indeed. Yes, they did. You also gave us Richard Hammond. Another conversation, another day. But <laughs> for you growing up in the early 70s in Birmingham, what was that like for you? And, and how much did that have an impact, do you think, on the sort of stories you came up with and your just kind of approach to what you have done with your career? That's really hard to quantify. I mean, the the truth is that I was born in Birmingham, but I grew up in a small town outside Birmingham uh, called Redditch. My, it's about, not far, like 20 miles south of Birmingham, um, where my parents moved when I was three years old, I think. Um, but I still had relatives in Birmingham, you know, my grandparents, both sets of grandparents still lived there, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, so I still had that connection with the city, but I grew up in, as I say, in this town called Redditch, which is, it's a medium sized town, but it has a small town mentality. And I think that actually did have a big impact on me because I desperately wanted to get out of the small town <laughs> and back to the city, uh, as so many young people do, you know. Uh, and I think that kind of, I think that had an effect in that it encouraged a wider perspective in me, which is something that I try to get across in my work. And I, I try to, I hope my work has, you know, most of my characters are either 
worldly people who don't sort of think twice about moving somewhere or visiting somewhere or, you know, they're consciously not parochial. Or if they are parochial, they, you know, are people who learn not to be uh, or who see the unfortunate consequences of being so. Um, so I, I guess it had that kind of effect. As for the heavy metal connection, I don't know whether that's a, a work thing necessarily, but it definitely had a huge influence on me personally. I'm a big heavy metal fan. One of the podcasts I do is a heavy metal podcast. Um, you know, I worship at the feet of Black Sabbath. Um, I have done things like my uh, my epic post-apocalyptic comic series, Wasteland, is very gothic uh, and quite metal in places. And for example, every issue of that comic was named for a song. Many of them were heavy metal songs. Uh, same with the trade paperback collections as well. They were all named after songs. Um, there are there are lyrics of some heavy metal and goth songs kind of hidden in there, uh, in the in characters' dialogue, and characters make allusions to you know sort of figures from that scene. So. I mean, that's a small work influence, if you like, but it definitely had an influence on me. And again, part of that influence was about encouraging open mindedness, because and this is where this is where I get on a hobby horse, because heavy metal has a bad rap uh, amongst a lot of people. But one of the reasons that I like metal and I like the heavy metal community is that it's not insular and it's not narrow minded. It's actually very, very open minded generally. It's open to experimentation. It's open to other genres sort of blending with metal in the same way that uh, superhero comics are open to lots of different genres sort of influencing, you know, the ur genre of superheroes. Uh, metal is very similar in that way. And I mean, I listen to a, a huge wide variety of music. I'm a great music lover. I listen to a lot of it and I listen to lots of stuff besides metal. But one of the things that having a love of metal really instilled in me in an early age, as I say, again, was this idea that it's OK to see new things, to experience new things and to enjoy new things and to seek out new things and new experiences. And I really think that that's had a, you know, a positive influence on me personally, but I think that has influenced my work as well because I'm I, I refer to myself as a sort of genre butterfly. I re, I refuse to kind of get pigeonholed <laughs> into one genre, and I have really flitted around between genres throughout my entire career, possibly to my detriment. You know, I, I could possibly have been a sort of uh, more successful in a single area if I'd knuckled down and focused on it, but I would be bored. I don't want to do that. Uh, I want to do all the all the different things. So, yeah, you know, broadly speaking, I'd say all of that is are factors in that approach to my work. In terms of the content of my work, though, as I say, I, I don't think it's really had that much of an influence. It's more about an attitude towards creativity. Okay. Well, and I know you touched on it that you know, comics were a, a bit of an influence for you growing up as they were for me. And I think they were for a lot of people, but I think the difference for, especially between American comics and English slash European comics, which I'm interested in was here. And as I'm sure, you know, 
you know, everything is Marvel DC. Yeah, Image came along in the 90s and there were small independent presses that were here and there. But whenever I heard about European comics, I would always hear about Heavy Metal and 2000 AD and Judge Dredd and what Alan Moore was doing. And then when Neil Gaiman came along and all the guys that were there in that same time frame, mid 70s to early to mid 80s, how much were you absorbing from that as well as American comics as a kid? I, I was mostly absorbing from that. I actually absorbed very little from American comics until I was in my sort of mid to late teens. I mean, it's funny that you mention Alan and Neil because they're the great body of their work was done for the American market, not the British market. Alan had a, uh, a prior career, mostly working for 2000 AD, but also mm-hmm. um, anthology comics like Warrior and stuff, uh, where he created Marvel Man, and uh, had a sort of success, had success there and had that career, but then he quickly moved to America, where the the opportunities were much greater. The money was a lot better as well. Let's be frank. I'm sure. Uh, Cause British comics at that time really did not pay a lot at all. Um, where he got the chance to do things like, you know, his epic run on Swamp Thing, which led to Watchmen and so on. Neil actually did very little in the British comic scene. I think he had maybe two short stories in 2000 AD. And that was, that was about it. Oh, and then he also, sorry, he completed Alan's run on Marvel Man. He did, I think, was it book three of Marvel Man? And then immediately well, almost immediately, it felt like moved to America and mm-hmm. started doing stuff like Black Orchid, which led to Sandman at Vertigo, well, and the creation of Vertigo. Um, and But part of that came with those guys because they did grow up reading American comics. They wanted to go and work for the big American publishers. I didn't. I grew up reading 2000 AD and uh, horror comic Scream we had over here was a great favorite of mine. And um, war titles like Action and Warlord and Victor and stuff. Those were my influences, along with the books mm-hmm. that I was reading, um, which were also a lot of war books at the time, actually, when I was a young boy. <laughs> Lots of sci-fi and war. Um, yeah, yeah, I was a young boy. What can you expect? Right. And uh, so yeah, those were my influences. But then in the great irony, I have never worked in the British comics market. Never. Right. Not once. All of my comics work has been either for uh, occasionally British book publishers putting out graphic novels or in terms of, you know, sort of what we might call pure comics has been for the American market, including a lot of those independent publishers that you mentioned. That's where I started with uh, people like Oni Press, Later Image and and so on. Uh, I've actually done very little work for the only work I ever did for DC was a couple of uh, commission scripts that got I got paid for, but they were never published. They were kind of, you know, filed away. Um And then I did a couple of years working for Marvel on Daredevil and associated titles around the time of the Shadowland event. Um, But other than that, all of my work has been for the American indie market, if you include images as an indie, obviously. Uh, Hmm. And yet none for the British market at all. So this is yet another reason why I'm a little unusual (laughs) in the field. I just haven't followed the same kind of path as pretty much anybody else that I know. And part of that is because I didn't grow up reading superheroes so i have no nostalgic love for them i I have nothing against them and i had fun in those couple of years that i worked for marvel uh you know it was fun doing what i got to do which were the very sort of street level noirish heroes that's you know that appeals to me but i don't have as i say that nostalgic affection i've never been you know i'm not one of these people who goes i i have 
my Batman story in my head that I want to write one day. That's I don't. I just don't. And I don't have a Spider-Man story that I want to write someday. And there are many, many other creators out there who do, who absolutely, you know, that's their aim. They want to write that ideal Spider-Man story or whatever that they've had in their head since they were six years old. And so I just kind of quietly stepped away from that field. There were people who wanted those jobs far more than I did Mm -hmm. and frankly would probably do a much better job than I would because of that love that they have for the characters. Uh, And so I was like, you know what, you go for it. I'm just, you know, that's, it's not really my thing. I had fun doing it, but it's not my world. And uh, you know, let other people in who, who want it more than me. And like I say, we'll probably do a better job. Um, but it is, yeah, it's, it, I've had a strange career path. I don't think anybody else has had quite the same path that I have. And I'm sure it's because of this strange mix of influences that I've had growing up that have affected how I approach my career and the sort of things that I like to write. Yeah. I, and also that was part of the reason why, of the many reasons why I was interested to talk to you. I mean, I know you and I have kind of passed each other in the periphery doing other things on other platforms, but what interests me about you is that you didn't take the more traveled road that you have kind of gone this back way, but still managed to come up with a successful career as a writer and a content creator and a producer across multiple mediums. But what I'm interested in also is when did, because I think we all get to this point and and I certainly did as a, a budding hack writer of some very small repute myself of thinking you know, can you think back to when you were a kid and if it was like a movie or a TV show or a book where you first got that inkling of I could do something better than this or this is something that I could still do? Did you have kind of that flashpoint? If I did, it was it's certainly the second, you know, if it was a kind of, oh, I would like to do this as well. It would have been very, very early because I, I've been reading books and comics, you know, since a very, very young age. You know, frankly, I don't remember a lot of those years. Um, I mean, I, I've often uh, mentioned this. My One of my earliest memories is when I was four years old, my father read a copy of The Beano to me, which is a, a British children's anthology comic. Uh, and I distinctly remember sitting on his lap. I couldn't read, but he was reading it to me. Um, uh, and and then, as I say, growing up, I was I carried on reading comics. I was a voracious reader of novels as well, um, and read a little nonfiction. Um, so I always had. I can't remember exactly when I had the feeling that that would be fun to do. I've always made up my own stories, and I'm sure that's because of being exposed to them so much at such a young age. As for, I think I can do this better. I'm not sure I've ever had that in comics or novels at any rate where I did have it mainly because, you know, I just kind of, cause I've read, <laughs> I've read good stuff. And so I read it and I get, and I normally have the opposite reaction. I read something good and I go, oh, I'm never going to be this good. Why am I even bothering? Um, which I know is a very common, you know, uh, Guilty. Common thing. Yeah. Amongst, you know, pretty much every creator has that, but yeah. where I didn't, where I, the one time that I distinctly remember, uh, experiencing a story and thinking I could do better than this is in video games. Mm. And that was the first two silent Hill games. Oh, really? 
I played video games pretty much my whole life. I mean, I grew up in the era of when video computer games and home computers came about. You know, I'm old enough to remember a time before home personal computers. Right. And so I grew up with arcade machines and personal computers and that very early era. So I've always played games, always enjoyed them. Uh, it was a, a Lucasfilm, Lucasfilm's game, LucasArts, it would have been, sorry, a game called Loom, which hmm. I've talked about on other podcasts before that inspired me to want to write games because that was the first game i encountered that really had a genuinely moving story and i mean you play it now and it's a bit primitive but at the time and certainly as i was quite young at the time as well it felt like a step change it felt like a quantum leap in uh game narrative for me but it was yeah playing the first two silent hill games on playstation where was the first real time that i i felt i really enjoyed that but I think I actually could do that and could do it better in some ways. Um, now, since then, I have written many video games. I got into the industry and I have a lot more sympathy with <laughs> those creators of those early games than I did when I was a young man when I played them. Um, I look back now and I think, oh, actually, I can see all the limitations they were working with and I right. understand why it was so primitive and you know all the problems that they would have had and limitations they would have had nevertheless so i, I you know I, i'm saying this so that i don't get horrible uh, angry email from people who love those games because i love them as well i genuinely do mm -hmm. but the dialogue and voice acting in them uh, is not the best you know it could be a lot better um but like i say i understand now the the problems and restrictions that they were working under um Nevertheless, it was enough to make me think, hmm, that's an area that I could probably do quite well in. You know, maybe I could make an impact. Um, and it was many years later, actually. I say many years. I mean, that's not true. It felt like many years because it was early in my career. Now that I think about it, it was actually only about four or five years <laughs> later when I did then write my first video game. Mm. And, uh, and as I say, I've written them ever since. That was in 2006. I've written them ever since, and it is actually the <laughs> it's a lot more difficult than people realize than I realized when I got into it. Um, but that certainly that was the impetus that got me along that road. And I'm happy to say that even though, as I say, I feel a little bit ashamed now that I was so dismissive of that earlier work. On the other hand, I, I'm kind of proud to say that I have had an impact. You know, I've I know there are things I have done that have improved the lot of game writers overall in small ways, uh, not least of which I sit on the video games committee of the Writers Guild of Great Britain. And one of the things we do is draw up guidelines for you know, narrative workers in games and stuff, but also just things I've done as a games writer. I know there are things I've done, practices that I have helped uh, institute and solidify that have improved game narrative. So at least I made good on my uh you know somewhat naive perhaps but well-meaning promise <laughs> yeah i would i would certainly hope so and it's funny because i was just playing uh castlevania symphony of the night for the first time in years the other day and i started from the beginning and and 
to your point about how even great games do not have the best dialogue. Uh, any young people are going to be listening to this, and it's frightening to think that Castlevania Symphony of the Night is almost 20 years old now, uh, or 25 now almost. So there are people listening to this who probably weren't even born when that game came out. Yeah, the same yeah. of Loom, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, we're getting old, man. We're getting old. But, you know, even the, the dialogue in that game very not good in fact the the opening sequence is now legendary for just how bad the dialogue is right but, right you oh know, i think i know the one you mean actually yes yes now that you, now that you say that yes <laughs> uh-huh but and, and i i would imagine you've been following this along with this as well especially given your position on the board but like with the whole and i don't want to be hyper, too hyperbolic about it but i don't think it's inappropriate to say the fiasco of what's happened with a game like cyberpunk 2077 and what we're finding out more about as far as its production history and how far the production crew was stretched and everything that's going into that. Do you think we're at a tipping point now in the industry where, like you said, more people are becoming aware of how the technological sausage gets made as far as these huge video game projects that the industry has to respond by being better? I mean, saying they have to respond, it's always dangerous to talk in absolutes like that, uh, or at least to make predictions in absolutes like that. Um, I hope they do. Uh, I really hope that the industry learns from this and applies those lessons. Whether it will, I don't know. The games industry is a, it's a huge industry and it is in, in that old you know, the old analogy, it is a huge battleship that takes a long, long time to turn. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you turn it very, very slowly by small degrees. It, it is very different now to when I first got into it. Like I say, I've now been in games for 15 years and it is a very different industry now to it, how it was when I first got into it for a writer certainly from a from a writer's point of view however there are also some aspects aspects of it which aren't different at all which have not changed at all in 15 years and some of those are the aspects that really should change to avoid another situation like cyberpunk 2077 funnily enough i actually tried to join the uh cyberpunk 2077 team when that game was first announced because hmm. i one of the things along with many other the many other parts of my misspent youth such as comics and heavy metal i was also a role player right uh, and uh you know i've been playing role-playing games since i was 12 13 years old tabletop role-playing games i mean and that includes the cyberpunk the original cyberpunk game by art alzorian i never played cyberpunk i played Shadowrun, but i never got to play cyberpunk oh and you see now we're at war um <laughs> i didn't run it i just played it <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid I'm a purist. I, I can't be doing with any of that magic. Um, <laughs> the original Cyberpunk game was released in, I think, 1988. And it was three Xeroxed stapled booklets in a that came in a box. Yeah. It wasn't even called Cyberpunk 2013 at that point. It was just called Cyberpunk. Um, and then they released the second edition, Cyberpunk 2020, and sort of retroactively renamed the first edition 2013. Um I loved that game. I absolutely, I played the hell out of Cyberpunk, both 2013 and 2020, but especially 2020. I loved it so much. So when CD Projekt Red announced that they'd got the license off Artel to do this game, I tried to get on that team. I sort of 
cajoled my agent, my games agent, to try and get me a gig on that game. Unfortunately, at the time, they were only looking for people on site. And I wasn't willing to move, relocate to Poland for two years or whatever to work on one game. That's fair. Um, yeah, right. I mean, some people would be. Sure. But I'm, again, along with my sort of flitting around between things, I, I, I very rarely spend two years working on a single project and doing nothing else. That, that's almost unheard of for me. So I didn't get on that team. And it looks like it was a blessing in disguise, you know, a bit of a dodged bullet. That said, it's really hard for me as somebody in the industry and i think most people in the industry to really throw anybody under the bus Mm. on that game because if you haven't worked in the games industry you you just won't quite understand the pressures at all levels that everybody is under because there is so much money at stake right uh and these games take so long to make like movies take a long time to make from the time that somebody writes a screenplay or a producer has an idea or whatever to the time it reaches cinemas takes a long time. Right. But most of that time is before the cameras start rolling. Right. It's before everybody is actually getting paid. It's all pre-production and deal making and negotiation and all that sort of stuff, which isn't really, you know, yeah, it costs a bit of money for the producers and stuff, but it's not really, nobody's talking about, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars at that point when you are talking about hundreds of millions of dollars is once everybody starts getting paid when the cameras are rolling and you're filming and then you're in production and post-production and then distribution to cinemas. Ha ha. Remember those. Um, and you know, streaming services, my view, and that's actually quite short, right? That's shorter than almost all videos. Oh, even, even, a, an indie game, like say, uh, gone home. There's an indie game that just about everybody has either heard, has either played or certainly heard of. You know, even that was I think two years in development. I know uh, one of the people, one of the co-founders of Fulbright, and that game took I think at least two years, maybe three, to develop. You know, and right, that's... and Cyberpunk took eight. Exactly. That, that's my point. It is you know, for the bigger the game, the longer the development process. Um, I've been involved in games that have taken four, five years to come to fruition. Um, and so that's why I'm trying to make uh, that's the why the, why I'm making this comparison, because people say, oh, but, you know, uh, movies cost two hundred million dollars. Well, yes, they do. But all that money is spent in the space of like 18 months mm-hmm. at the point at which everybody is committed to a release date and everybody knows pretty much how long those steps will take. That's not the case when you're making games. That's really not. And so you end up spending tens of millions of pounds, euros, dollars, whatever, sometimes over a hundred million to uh, make something that actually nobody knows how to make most of the time. Most games, most big games involve creating new technologies. And so nobody's quite sure how it's going to work or whether it's going to work. Unlike a movie where, apart from the special effects department, pretty much everybody knows how to do their job and you know what's technologically possible. So like I say, it's you, you can call the cyberpunk situation a failure of management. Uh, and that's not unfair. You know, ultimately the buck stops at the top. And, you know, you've got to say, well, somebody, if somebody's got to take responsibility, it has to be a management failure. But even those guys are under massive pressure because of the money, because they're getting their money from investors and, you know, uh, the banks are on their back and then the the distributors are on their back to actually get them the game. And then the platform holders, Sony and Microsoft, are also on their back because they've committed resources to this as well. It's 
it's just a horrible situation from you know top to bottom and then down at the bottom you've got the people actually in the trenches making the games you can't blame them no because you know they're not the ones allocating resources or deciding budgets and schedules so yeah as i say it's it's really really hard to kind of throw people under the bus for that because i have enormous sympathy with everybody at pretty much every level being under enormous pressure to get this game out for god's sake just get it out because you say it had been in development for so many years right i was and, starting to think it had never come out you know? yeah and, and also the consumer demand was so high you yeah. know yeah. consumers are not willing to wait when you say a project like that on that sort of scale is being made you know you're they're not willing to wait eight years they want it tomorrow because a lot of people to your point don't understand the amount of work that goes into yeah. it they don't understand that because in and using your analogy of of putting it towards movies which of course we'll touch on in a minute you know the that machine is because it's been so established and it's been going that way for so long you can flip a script around if it gets out of development hell and turn it into a movie you can see in 18 to 24 months depending on the budget depending on the studio investment in it sometimes yeah. yeah right but that you have to come up with new technology. You have to come up with like a game engine. You know, like I remember I saw a couple of days ago, I think it was Bethesda said that we may not see a new Elder Scrolls game until 2027, mm. which is going to be a seven year deal. Yep. And I know there are people out there who are already clamoring and saying, well, I can't wait that long and screw Bethesda. And they're just hosing us without, fully understanding the amount of infrastructure that has to be built so that game can come out at that deadline and work we're such a young industry games as we think of them console gaming as we think of it is what 25 years old yeah you know 30 i suppose you could argue if you go back to kind of before the playstation one's launch but really 25 30 years old that's nothing no that's I mean, the Nintendo Entertainment so, System is going to turn 40 yeah, this yeah. decade, which is frightening. Exactly, because but... you can't make... The, the trouble is people think that because we had computer games, because we had P, what we think of now as PC games before the console boom, people think, oh, well, it's just the same, isn't it? But it's really not. Again, you know, if you, if you know the industry, if you ask people who worked in that era, who now work on console titles, they're nothing alike partly because of the inflation of budgets, every console generation, the the technology gets so much more demanding that the budgets increase. Uh, And when the budgets increase, the pressure increases. And And the demand increases. And right, yeah. Um, And the other problem is, yes, as you say, the public want their games. And the more you delay, the less chance there is. And you do see this in movies a little as well. We're seeing it at the moment with, a lot of the movies that are being delayed due to the pandemic. Right. The longer something takes to come out, the less chance there is of it actually getting good reviews of people actually enjoying it. Part, partly because they build it up in their mind so much to, to the point that they expect that it's going, just going to be the best game ever. It's going to be absolutely perfect and do everything they want it to do. And of course it's not. Of course it, it's the fact that it's taking so long is normally a sign that it won't do any of those things because it's in troubled development. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and this is where you can really put, you know, a fair portion of the blame on management because 
the problem is that they uh, and again they they do this partly because of investors, but they come out and they say we're making a game and here's a, a lovely cutscene to show you what it's going to be like, and they'll show you a pre-rendered animated cutscene that has nothing to do with the game that has no relationship with the technology involved in the game that is made before the game design is even finalized. And then they say, and it's coming out in two years time. <laughs> and everybody back at the studio goes, is it? Uh, and it, it's impossible. They set impossible expectations that the game can never possibly live up to. And right. That... The roar of the crowd dulls out the collective explosion of all the heads of all the engineers and yeah. the producers going. He said, what? Yeah, exactly. And that is, you know, that is an issue that goes to the top uh, because nobody in the trenches is involved in those decisions, obviously. Um, that is something that I would really like the industry to stop doing because it has led to, you know, these these big uh sort of prominent catastrophic releases that we've seen in uh in some recent years will the industry change and stop doing that i don't know i i hope they do but like i say it's a big ship takes a long time to turn right and, and yeah like you said it's and it's not just exclusive to this where in all creative media and I've, I've been seeing this in the 15 years i've been trying to get by as a journalist things move glacially while the landscape moves at light speed yes you know it's yes. every, everybody's trying to catch up and if you can find a way to get ahead of the curve bless you because you managed to get really lucky but a lot of people get pulled under in the wake and there's nothing you can do but just hope that you can tread water long enough that everything sorts out and you are still in your position of relative safety so let's let's switch it over to from video games to writing, because one of the things I noticed in looking over your body of work as a writer is, and, and I would think you would agree with me on this, we're all, I tend to subscribe to the, the old Chinese theory of there are really just kind of like five or six stories that we're all retelling in some sure. form or another. You know, we're all standing on the shoulders of people who have told bigger and better versions of the stories we want to tell. But one thing I noticed about your work and starting with your first uh, novel, Frightening Curves, was you take a genre like a cop, you know, crime novel and give it a slight twist. You know, in that story, your your protagonist, he's a cop, but he's also a psychic and he has to deal with a wizard and and. I know it's not of a similar or the exact same vein, but I know it's something else that writers like Jim Butcher did with uh, sure. his Harry Dresden novels, yeah. where you take genre and you take trope and you find a way to give it a little bit more authenticity by giving it a slight twist. How long did it take you to figure that out? Or was that kind of your approach from the very beginning of when you started writing? I mean, I'm, I'm not, it's only now that you say it that I kind of think, oh, yeah, actually, that is something that I do a lot, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not, I'm, yeah. And I'm not, not saying that's that a I bad do. thing because obviously no, I, it's been successful for you. I, I, I understand that, but it's not something that I do consciously uh, other than having an idea and thinking, oh, that would be interesting. Or having an idea and thinking, oh, that needs something more. And then getting, oh, what if I, like the fuse actually being a good example, uh, which is, you know, set on a space station. And what I might, the impetus for that was a conversation I had with a friend who uh, is a physicist. And we were talking about space elevators 
and um you know the idea of having this sort of rotational gravity and all that sort of thing and that just it one thing led to another and i just thought oh, i'd really like to set something either on a space elevator or maybe on a floating platform or something an orbiting platform but what could it be you know it's got to be an interesting story and i the one thing i am conscious of is i love mysteries almost all my stories are mysteries in one form or another they all have something that people are trying to find out the truth of mm. at their heart and in a, almost in a flash, I just thought, what if there were cops? What if it was just literally mysteries, but in space? Um, and that was that was the base for the fuse, which was then what? We went for four, 24 issues, four collected volumes of that. It's been optioned for TV. Um, you know, it's still one of my, I'm very proud of it, but I, I'm also pleased to say that it went down very well. It's one of my sort of best known works. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was not so much a conscious or oh, I'm going to put two genres together as I had an idea and I thought, well, what can I inject into that? That's unusual and will make it stand out. And that was, as I say, putting the cops into it and combining those two genres. But if you look at other work, like say wasteland, that's not really combining two genres, you know, that is post-apocalyptic. Okay. There are some people with psychic powers in it, but that's not unusual for that genre either. Um, so it's not something I do all the time, but I suppose it is, something that I have done a fair amount of. Um, it's just because I'm always looking for an interesting angle on a genre. I like genre fiction. You know, I have no problem, no qualms with going, I'm going to write a crime story or a spy story or a sci-fi story or a fantasy. Um, I have no problem with going into genre, but I am also conscious of the fact that there is so much of it. Right. <laughs> you know, there is so much genre fiction out there that I want to do something a that i haven't seen before i mean that doesn't mean to say that it's completely unique but at least i'm not consciously doing something that i've seen before and also in my own style in my own voice uh so you get that's how you get something like umbral which was a fantasy series that i did with image sort of dark fantasy and partly that came about because chris mitten who co-created wasteland with me and i wanted to work together again we wanted to do something else together again and I knew that that was a genre that Chris would absolutely crush in terms of artwork I knew that he'd be great for it um so that was that was a conscious move okay I'm gonna write a dark fantasy because Chris will be great at drawing it but then when it came to actually figuring out the story I thought well what do I like about fantasies what haven't I seen before uh what would make it fit my style and that's how you get a story where magic and religion are both outlawed there has been a cataclysm but nobody really quite knows what it is uh, and you have these strange nightmarish shadow creatures running around imitating real people and you get a sort of Battlestar Galactica style thing where nobody quite knows who's real and who's one of the umbral and the protagonist is a teenage girl so all of these things are fit my sensibilities if you like and fit my kind of style i was like you know these are things i know i can write that i can write well uh that i and that i'll have fun writing um umbra was actually planned for like seven volumes unfortunately we only got to do two because much as chris and i enjoyed making it we just didn't have that many readers <laughs> mm. um yeah, the ones we had really liked it but we just couldn't reach enough of them unfortunately um but as again, is the way i mean that's just yeah that's, that's and that's across the board in all media if you don't pull enough viewers yeah. for your tv show it doesn't stick 
Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But I, again, very proud of the, the two volumes that we put out there and the work we did because it was kind of unique. And I still don't think anybody's quite done anything like it. Now, that's probably quite sensible, given that we didn't sell that many. <laughs> it's probably not a good idea to do uh, something too close to it. But still, uh, you know, I am proud of the fact that we made something, as I say, that is, was quite unique in the end. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't really know how to answer that question, to be honest, because it's not it's the, the the conscious part of it for me, as I say, is trying to find a way to tell a story that interests me, that will keep my interest, that I can write in my voice and my style. Um, and as I say, that I haven't seen before, all of which sometimes are high bars. There are many, many stories that I've had. And I'm sure I'm not alone in this. There are many creators that, who would say this, I'm sure. But I've had many ideas for stories where I think, oh, that's an idea. But then as soon as I start working around it and thinking about it, I can't quite make it. I can't quite uh, go over those bars. That's a terrible. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. <laughs> my, met my metaphor brain is dead. Uh, I can't sort of cross those barriers. I, I get stuck on one or more of them mm. trying to make it unique and make it something that fits my own sensibilities uh, and that I would want to read. Yeah, that's ultimately it everything that I make is something that I would want to read or watch or uh, listen to even. Um, and if I can't do that, then I, I won't do it. It will continue to sit until I can figure out a way to, to make it meet those qualifications. How long did it take you to really find your voice in a way that you felt comfortable enough with where you, you know, writing short stories or going through comics or, or however, what point in your trajectory did you get to the, the realization of, okay, this is what my voice is. This is how my creations are going to be. This is how they're going to sound. This is how they're going to emanate from me. I mean, you could argue that I'm, I still haven't reached that, that point, really. Um, I'm always wary of trying to analyse my own voice too much, partly because it's very self-deceptive. Um, I'm very fond of, I think it was Johnny Cash, who said that style is just a question of what you don't play. Uh, and I, I thought that was a really good way of putting it. It's, yeah. uh, you know, it's not about what you do, it's, what about, it's about what you don't do. Mm -hmm. um, and... I, I suppose I could say it was about 10 years of being a professional writer, about 10 years into being a published professional writer. I went, oh, okay, I'm starting to figure out this is the kind of story I like to tell. This is how I like to do it, you know, and so on. But I know that since then I have reread work from before that time and gone, oh, okay, no, I can see myself in this, actually. This, you know, I don't, it sometimes feels like I haven't progressed at all. <laughs> I read old stuff. And while I can sort of see clumsy bits in it and think, oh, I'd, I'd rewrite, I'd write that differently, what have you. But there is enough in there that I'm like, oh, no, that's, that's me. I can tell that's me immediately. Um, so, like I say, that's what I mean about it being self-deceptive. I kind of, I, I might like to think that I've figured out what my voice is, but I'm not sure I have mm. because I thought I had 10 years ago and then I read older work and thought, oh no, I was always like that. Right. Do you, do you think writers, especially when they're starting out, do you think they try too hard to conform their voice to what they think readers want or what publishers want or because 
I, I it seems like, and, and I only say this because I know I've had this problem when I'm going through and working on my own projects of when I get to it, I'll be looking over a piece that I've worked on and gone, okay, there's bits here that I like, but I can also tell when I'm, I know I've been like, I've been reading Neil Gaiman this week because my oh, my yeah. lyricism <laughs> kind of goes off that way. Or I've been reading uh, a Raymond Chandler novel because things are more precise. Or I've been Ian read, reading Ian Fleming, you know, where that those influences kind of shape what you think you need to sound like rather than cultivating your own voice. So I, I think there are several there are several branches to answer this. Firstly, we're all products of all our influences and I don't have a problem with that. I am quite happy to admit that I am a product of all my influences and that's fine because even another person who who had read all the same things that I had and seen all the same movies I have and what have you still would write different stuff because they're not me. Uh, So that I don't have a problem with at all. I personally never tried to sound like anybody else when I was writing. In fact, if anything, I deliberately went the other way. Uh, I, I deliberately, you know, tried not to sound like other people and was very determined to write in my own voice. If you read Frightening Curves, it is, that is me. That is how, you know, how I thought and wrote at, and spoke at that time. Um, but, and this comes back to self-deception again, I have the same issue, especially these days, when I'm writing uh after having read uh, you know say a writer that i really like for example i know that when i wrote the first draft of the tempest project i had recently finished reading uh william gibson's peripheral mm. and i i felt as i was writing it i was like oh god I, you know i can feel the gibsonisms coming out of me you oh, know, yeah. through my fingers um but here's the funny thing when i read it back they weren't there or at hmm. least nowhere near as many of them as I had thought there were. Okay. Now, is that just because my style actually does subconsciously imitate Gibson a little bit? Maybe that's true. I don't know. Or is it just because I thought I was being influenced because I had just read the book and I loved it and I'm a big fan of Gibson. So did I just think it, but actually my voice came through and rejected those, uh, two overt influences as i say it's we are writers are terrible judges of our own oh yes oh yes um i'm terrible at it well and i could say you know quite often i'll read something and i'll just go well i don't i don't feel like i have an authorial voice it's just because it's just me you know right but then people who read my work will recently go well i knew that was you immediately because you do this and this and this and i'm like oh do i okay (laughs) i I think yeah i think we're really bad judges of that we are and and i had like a project i'm working on now i picked it up again after putting it down for about a year and was going through a rewrite and i have a friend of mine who she's kind of helping me proof it and has been giving me really good criticism and feedback. And one of the things she said to me was, you know, your writing style is, and it stunned me when she said this, she goes, you have a beautiful writing style. And I went, wait a minute, I'm writing a hard boiled crime fiction story. Beautiful doesn't apply here. And I have been told, I've been given a lot of criticism over the years in peer groups by professors and stuff. I had a, I had a professor in, in college who told me, you know, don't look the, to this to be your day job. 
I'm like, wow, that's constructive. Wow. And, and, you know, the, I think the fact that we are, like you said, we're so self-deprecating and we are so self-deceiving in our own skill as a writer. And then we get those sorts of reinforcements beat us down so much that it makes it so we don't give ourselves credit and it doesn't allow us to really expand on it, you know? And you wrote this nonfiction help book called The Organized Writer. And, you know, I one of the... the um, pieces of praise for it was that you were listed you were listed as the uh oh where is it um i've got ah my computers the marie Kondo of writing oh yes <laughs> by linda yeah, yeah yeah and you know what is it that that you think out of that what is one real piece of advice that you got in putting that together that you think writers who are either starting out or are struggling really need to focus on to get better and get to a point where they can maybe become a, a career writer. The one thing I always say, the most important thing you can do is finish your drafts by not self editing as you go. I don't think I can't really put it any more succinctly than that. And there is two things, but they must go together, finish your drafts and you do that by powering through and continuing to write rather than stop to edit what you did before. Mm -hmm. Now that doesn't work for everyone. I know no. very successful writers who do self-edit as they go, you know, but they also have the discipline and the willpower to get through to the end. If you are struggling, if you're one of those people who struggles to finish things and you keep writing half a book, half a screenplay, half a short story even, if that's your problem, then the way to solve it is the part, part of the reason you're having those problems is almost certainly because you're doubting yourself. You get to that point, you go, oh, what I've done so far isn't very good. I need to I need to clean this up first. And then that's it. Once you do that, forget it. You've lost and you'll never finish it. You'll just endlessly revise that first half. Instead, you have to somehow give yourself, learn to have the confidence to go, no, what I've written so far isn't great, but it's better than nothing. Right. Now I'm going to write the second half. And then when I get to the end, I can go back and revise the whole thing. I can revise everything because nobody else will ever see it before I revise it. Once you can sort of make that mental leap and get over that hurdle, realize nobody will ever see it unless you send it to them. You're not obligated you know, to do so until it's finished until you're happy with with having revised it, until you've finished revising it and polished it, at least semi-polished it, into a state where you're happy for other people to look at it. So, yeah, power through and get that draft finished. That's, I mean, there are many, many other things in the book, obviously, as you know, you know, about sort of time management and using your calendar and sorting out your email and all that sort of stuff. But in terms of the writing, well, and there's other stuff about sort of finding a time to write and uh, writing with a clean mind and memory offloading and all that sort of stuff but at its core finish that draft get that finished if you can do that everything else will start to sort of fall into place and sort itself out but you must get that draft finished because without a draft you have nothing to sell right the the analogy that i was always taught was and the one that always stuck with me was i you have to look at it you have to look at the process like an archaeologist looks at getting a fossil out of the ground they take this huge chunk of earth out of the ground. You don't know what's in it, but mm -hmm. 
but you have a rough shape of what you think it is. And then you go in with the fine tools and you chip away at it and you pick away at it and you start putting the puzzle pieces together. And maybe a piece that's sitting over here actually goes over here. You know, that, that has been the, the, little bit of a mantra that I've always tried to cling to my whole life as a fledgling writer is just get the damn thing out of the ground first, get it to a point where you can go, okay, I have a rough idea what this is. Now what? Yeah. what let's start peeling away things. We can actually get to the core of it. So I would be most remiss if I didn't talk about the one work that I know that most people, when I mention your name comes up with is atomic blonde which of course you wrote originally as the coldest city and <laughs> yeah she's the, right uh, i even have the production poster yes <laughs> lovely charlene up on the wall and and you know for those of us who aspire to get to that point where we want to come up with a story that gets that sort of attention and originally you wrote it as a graphic novel which i have and i've read it and it was i really enjoyed it but if you can kind of expand on that process a little bit, because I know once it came out that that got the attention of Charlize Theron and she was interested in it and the property got picked up. And then the next thing we knew it was being processed and turned into a script, which turned into a film over a span, like we've been talking about of a couple of years for you. What was that ride like? Well, so first of all, actually, it was optioned before it was published, a couple of months before it was actually released. Uh, When I wrote, I originally wrote the script in 2009. Uh, My intention originally was to try and get it released on the 20th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, That didn't happen for many and varied reasons, but that was when I wrote it. It was in early 2009 or summer Mm -hmm. 2009, I should say. Um, as soon as the script was written, and I already had an agreement with Oni Press were going to publish it. I already had a contract. As soon as the script was finished, Oni's production partners at that time in Hollywood, they passed them all the scripts. You know, they got to see everything, of course. Right. Uh, they read it and immediately went, well, this could be a movie. You know, just the, the way it was written, the, the sensibilities, the genre, etc. The way I tend to write comic scripts as well is in a sort of semi screenplay format and they went well this is practically a screenplay we can take this out um and so they did and they went around town and i mean it took a few years but a few people expressed interest one of which was uh Charlie's theron's production company and they showed it to Charlie's and she liked it and so we started negotiating and then yeah they optioned it as i say i think it was about two months before the book was released uh, in 2012 then there was a whole lot of nothing for three years mm-hmm. uh, a whole lot of really just you know talks and phone calls but nothing happening at all and then in early 2015 finally we secured financing for it uh with charlie's on board obviously as i say she her you know it was her company that bought the option they optioned the book essentially so she was always going to star in it she was always going to produce it but we didn't have anything else So in early 2015, they finally secured the money through a lot of um, foreign pre-write sales and banks and all boring Hollywood financing stuff that I don't fully understand myself. I don't really want to understand myself to be perfectly. I don't think there are Nobel Prize winning economists who fully understand all that. Right. And like I say, I don't want to. I really don't. I've seen enough of it to know that I don't want to know (laughs) any more about it. Um, 
<laughs> I'm Once quite happy to be ignorant on that score. Sure. Uh, however, then we got really lucky, really lucky, because that summer Mad Max Fury Road came out. Mm. And suddenly, taking the pitch around town, hey, Charlize Theron's next action movie, which she is going to star in and produce, it was like, it, it was a golden ticket to open every door. The timing everybody, was perfect. Yeah, everybody wanted to know what this movie was going to be. Every actor wanted to, you know, sort of have a shot or be considered for it or at least start talking about it. It was, yeah, as I say, we got so lucky. Uh, and that's how we wound up with such the such an amazing cast for a relatively low budget movie. It was not an expensive movie. It was $30 million was the budget. And yet we got that incredible cast. Yeah. Um just crazy now uh, sorry the, there is a, a point you mentioned that i skipped over there and that was uh kurt jonstad wrote mm-hmm. the screenplay in that time that's what that's really what happened in that span of three years was he wrote two drafts of the screenplay um uh and i was a co-producer so mm-hmm. i got to read those drafts and stuff and give notes on them but to be honest mostly you know i had some notes and stuff but mostly it was all kurt's thing you know i, I don't want to step on his toes he was the screenwriter he did a great job uh I, I gave my notes but i would never take credit for you know sort of the the innovations that he helped bring to the movie that weren't in the graphic novel right. and then the other person who did that was dave leach the director mm-hmm. It was Dave's idea to turn it because the graphic novel, as you know, having read it, is a very it's black and white. It's deliberately black and white. Uh, That was a very conscious artistic choice because we wanted that noir Cold War feel. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very dry. It's it's very Le Carre inspired. Uh, You know, Lorraine pulls her gun, I think, three times in the entire graphic novel and shoots it once. Um, You know, there is not a lot of action. The stairwell fight. The famous stairwell fight in the movie that takes 12 minutes, that famous one shot thing, takes four pages in the graphic novel and like maybe three punches are thrown. Uh, (laughs) It's, you know, it's nothing. But Dave said, what if we made a noir that instead of being monochrome was saturated in color because it's the 80s and we have all this. Which was a great idea. It was genius. It was absolute genius. And I give him all the credit for that because that is what made the movie so distinctive. It's what helped separate it from the graphic novel. It's what helped elevate it to the movie medium. Because if you just filmed the graphic novel, honestly, it would have been a bit dull. You know, I I, I make no bones about that. I'm very proud of the graphic novel as a graphic novel, but that would not have worked if you just translated it to the screen. Um, So, yeah, as I say, we just got very lucky with timing, personnel, uh, you know, sort of people being open uh, in terms of their schedule and stuff. It was just it was a whole. And this is the thing. This more than anything else. This is the thing I've learned about because I've now I'm writing screenplays and stuff as well. Mm -hmm. Um, The thing that that movie taught me about Hollywood more than anything else is that you need a perfect storm of these things to come together to make a movie and if you don't have them you will never get that movie made and that is why it is so hard to get a movie made and why there are so relatively few movies made every year that's why development hell is a very real thing it it really is it really is because you need that spark you need a, a, a hot director or a hot actor or a hot concept you know that's in the zeitgeist i think something needs to spark that makes people go yes and then 
even that's not enough because then you need something else mm. to become part of that perfect storm to kind of pick it up and then it starts building momentum and before you know it you're off to the races um you asked what the experience was like it was like a whole lot of nothing until it was a whole lot of something <laughs> um because you we had these and the development process was relatively quick i know now with the benefit mm -hmm. of experience that you know because everybody's told me like wow five years that's really quick and i was like is this okay um turns out yes it is but three of those years nothing happened at all and then it was only in the last two years that things really started to happen and suddenly from the moment of oh this is really going to happen we've got a cast like we, James McAvoy signed on, holy crap, you know, this is really mm -hmm. going to happen to me being on set while Charlize and John Goodman and Toby Jones were acting the hell out of a tiny little cubicle together in Hungary. Right. Um, Very Tinker Taylor, by the way. Right. It was actually that scene, wasn't it? Yeah. But from there to there was like six months. Mm. if that so that was a whirlwind. And then, of course, you know, production finished and post-production. Then we had a bit of a delay. But still, obviously, everything was going on in the background and there was publicity and then there was the actual release. And that really was a whirlwind. And that's that was a case of, you know, you you spend a month basically because we had a premiere in Berlin, followed by another premiere in Los Angeles. And then off the back of that premiere, I spent a couple of weeks in Los Angeles having meetings with everyone, you know, doing the tour of all the studios as you do. Um, you know, that's just fairly standard for anybody who's had a movie come out i'm told right for that month your royalty for that month the red carpet is rolled out for you everywhere you you never have to lift a finger everything is got for you you are you know you get lavish hotel suites and you just you can't nobody can help you enough everybody's mm. falling over themselves to help you a private cars pulling up outside my door in the street and the neighbors are going what the hell's going on here you know it, just ridiculous and then after the movie comes out boom back to earth <laughs> all of that is gone the machine the, has moved on yeah yeah there is somebody else getting that treatment now and uh, and i you know you can barely get somebody to return your phone calls that's just <laughs> that's just how it is you know right that's uh but luckily and I, I really sincerely mean this i'm actually kind of glad that i well two things one that i am not young I'm actually kind of glad that this happened to me, you know, after a good stage of my career, because mm. it, that helped me keep my feet on the ground. Absolutely. Um, but also, I'm kind of glad that I got burned by Hollywood quite a bit when I was young. You know, when I was starting out, things like Frightening Curves, even my very first book, I had Hollywood producers on the phone saying, hey, we want to option your book. We want to turn it into a movie. And I'm like, this was easy. <laughs> They, they told me being a successful author was difficult. Turns out it's really easy. Well, no, actually, it is really difficult. And yeah, over the years, I got burned several times by Hollywood producers promising the earth and then delivering absolutely nothing. And mm. so when Atomic Blonde started happening, I was very resolutely, okay, I'll believe it when I see it. Sure. Um, uh, and as I say, again, I think that really helped me sort of keep my feet on the ground. I enjoy, don't get me wrong. I enjoyed the red carpet treatment. I was at the premieres. You know, I got I signed 
glossy pictures of myself in the for the crowd. That's all that's that had to be surreal. Completely surreal. I mean, look at me, Vaud. Yeah, I'm not, you know. What? It's just absurd. But I enjoyed it. I was like, I'm gonna go along with this. I'm gonna enjoy the ride while it lasts. And that's exactly what I did. Um and and now I'm back in my tiny little study just writing, you know, doing what I love. Uh it was an experience I'll never forget. It will probably never happen again, but that's okay. You know, how many people get to do it even once? Right, exactly. And yeah. it's it's good to have that perspective. Like you said, if you were 25 and this happened. Oh, I, you, I would be insufferable. <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot of people who are in their 50s, it finally happens to. They're still insufferable as well, you know. <laughs> but one thing I, I am curious about from that whole process of, because like you said, you turned it over to a scriptwriter. They went through and put it together and they made changes to your original story. I know, you know, in the coldest city, DeSalle was a male character and yes. in Atomic Blonde, he most definitely is not. It's a female character. Which and you have I that actually thought was a brilliant move, by the way. I was fully in favor of that. See, and that was what I was curious about, because I know. And, and as we've been discussing, not only are can we not be objective about our own work, but a lot of times we tend to be overly protective of our work and. I wonder sometimes if when you are having to step back and let somebody else take the reins of something you created and said, okay, I, I understand 85% of this and this will translate from a book to a screen, but how about we give these sorts of ideas and tweak these things in such a way that we think we can make the story better. How important do you think that interplay is for a writer to understand that that you can't do a straight one-to-one transfer because it just doesn't it can't guarantee it's going to work yeah i think it's crucial for your sanity as much as anything else um i like to take the i think it was raymond chandler who said it first the raymond chandler approach which is when somebody uh said to him you know was interviewing him and said what do you think about how Hollywood keeps ruining all your books? He just pointed to his bookshelf and said, Hollywood hasn't done a thing to my books. They're all there. They're right. all still there. You can still read them. Um, so I, li- I like to take that approach of like, that they are very separate things. But also I have done adaptations myself. I have adapted prose into comics quite mm-hmm. often, actually. I've done a fair bit of it throughout my career. And so I've been on the other side of that desk. You know, I I understand it from the adapter's perspective. And I know that even with the greatest respect for the source material, you have to make changes. You have to, because it just won't work in the other in another medium. Every medium has its own advantages, disadvantages, strengths and weaknesses. You have to make it work in that medium to which you're adapting. Um, The example that i used quite often when i was talking about this during the release of atomic blonde was the uh the born movies mm. have you read the born identity i have and how similar is it to the movie uh i'd say maybe 30 percent at best i mean that's generous i yeah <laughs> I'd i said it about about it's been a long time since i've read <laughs> yeah. those books i know the born <laughs> supremacy is not the born supremacy by yeah. any stretch of the imagination <laughs> Look, there's a guy called Bourne, he's lost his identity and he's got a microchip in his leg. I mean, that's pretty much all there is left of the book in the movie. And he meets a woman named Marie. Oh, okay, yes. Yeah, okay, fair point. But you see my point. Right. And, but that's a great movie. Yes. And it's a great book. 
And lots and lots of people went and read that book because it was a great movie. Mm -hmm. And that is all I ever wanted. That's all I wanted from Atomic Blonde. And I said this, I explicitly said this to the filmmakers, to Charlize, to Dave, to anybody who asked. I was like, I have already written the best graphic novel that I could. Now it's your job to make the best movie that you can. And if that means you have to change things, please. I'm not just giving you my blessing. I'm urging you to do it because I want this to be a great movie. Mm. I don't care how faithful it is to the details of the book. Now, that's not to say that I wanted it to be completely different with all different characters, you know, and I'm very flattered that it actually was quite faithful, more faithful than a lot of, you know, movies are of books that they adapt. Mm. Um, and I'm very glad of that. But one of the things I'm most glad of is that Charlize got the character of Lorraine. Mm. Yes, she's different in the movie to the book. She has blonde hair for a start, which she does not have in the book. But also, you know, she is different on the surface. She she plays her slightly differently. She looks different. She acts different. She's much more physical and dynamic and what have you. But the core of the character's personality is there. You know, if you've read the book, you can see, oh, yeah, right. that's that's the character from the book. Yes, absolutely. And she got that. And I I could see immediately from the moment I met her and saw her in that little room with John Goodman and Toby Jones, I was like, oh, she gets it. Mm. Thank goodness she gets it. And from that moment on, all my fears just evaporated because I was like, well, and because she was the producer. So I, if she got it, then everybody else would have to get it effectively. Right. Um, you know, because she was the one calling the shots. So that in that particular case, as I say, helped me relax a great deal. But generally, yeah, I'm not precious about that stuff as long as the end result is good. Now, if the end result's bad, I might have something to say. But <laughs> but right. if the end result is good, I don't really care how faithful it is. And that goes for when I'm watching adaptations of stuff that I have no involvement in. You just, you know, movies that I know are adapted from books. I don't care how faithful they are. I care whether they're good because if they're good they will make me want to seek out the source material even if it's different yeah i, I remember what the, inspired this great movie you know sure no I, and i remember in the early 80s they did a version of the born identity that i think was more faithful to the original book and richard chamberlain played jason Bourne, oh, and I that's not just that. yeah i mean I, I used to work on a movie store so it was one of those when we had the born identity it came out it was well here's the version with matt damon and here's the original version with richard chamberlain and i think it was more like a tv movie or it was a super low budget right you know because it was the early 80s and nobody remembers it for the exact reason because the new version that came out in the 2000s was that much better and told the story in a way that people got it and got people interested in it yeah exactly so the the books you're working on now you start with the exforia code and and your most recent book the tempest project you have another female protagonist bridget sharp and she's a an mi6 analyst a cyber analyst and in the same vein with lorraine broughton in the coldest city atomic blonde you know you you in creating these stories and having female characters at the big, at the center of it, I know there's a lot of grinding in creative circles nowadays about how well male characters or male writers should stick to male characters and not try to write female characters and vice versa of kind of the whole stay in your lane mentality 
and obviously you don't subscribe to this. I, I Otherwise, never have. I have always written female protagonists throughout my right. career. Yeah. But and as a writer who who does that, you know, what is the what do you think is the essential thing for writers when they're coming up with characters, be they male or female, to make it so they don't care about the name on the author strip on the top of the book they care about the character that they've created because you've made it something that they can be interested in i think and and obviously i know that this is a sensitive subject but almost all of the other authors specifically other authors that i know who are women or minorities people of color uh you know so lgbtq people they all none of them care whether a guy like me, you know, who is yet yeah, just like a middle-aged white guy, whatever, um, none of them care if I write those characters. What they care about is how I write those characters. Mm. And that is the key, I think, to do it well, accurately, sympathetically, and in a way that isn't demeaning. Sure. And also, in the case certainly of... Um, uh writers from particularly unrepresented minorities to do it in a way that i'm not denying that position to a writer from that community that's the big thing to me mm. um and i have and i'm not going to go into detail but i have done that at times in my career i have turned down offered work mm. because i thought that it should go to somebody else who represented the community to which the thing i was being asked to write belonged um hasn't always happened but you know there's only so much i can do obviously but right. I, I do what i can but i that's the approach i try to take is i think am i actually am i denying a position to somebody else uh in this case and if not okay well then can i write this character sympathetically and truthfully um you know, and can I do the research and sort of find the sensitivity readers and what have you to enable me to do that? And I can, you know, like I have been able to do that and I will continue to, to do that as I write these characters. Uh, in the case of Brigitte, I'm, you know, there are actually more women writing crime and thrillers than there are men. Mm. Um, I'm a member of the Crime Writers Association here in the UK. And yeah, you know, Crime and thrillers, obviously, are the world's best-selling genre right now, and there are more women doing it than there are men. Um, right. I am not, you know, stealing a spot from a woman by writing a female protagonist. Mm -hmm. um, but more importantly, to me anyway, from an artistic point of view, is that all of the women I know who have read the Brigitte books have complimented me on her as a character. Mm. Um, and that is actually very important to me that I take sort of great pride in. Um, and I don't think I'm sort of special and unique in that. It's just that, you know, I listen and I observe and I research. And again, I'm sympathetic and I try to be uh, truthful about the sort of person that this particular character is. Um, but also there aren't that many women in spy fiction characters. I mean, there just aren't. You know, right. it's a really underrepresented type of character. Same with The Coldest City. I mean, part of the reason I, that Lorraine is Lorraine is because I thought, because she was originally going to be a man. That character sure. was originally going to be male. And then I, and I was 
planning the book and it was kind of it was all right but you know i was like ah, yeah. like i said before that trying to you know reach that bar of like what what makes this something i haven't seen before and then i thought oh what if she was a woman alone in a man's world haven't seen that before in the context of cold war spy fiction no okay you know then let's do that and that's how you know that was the spark that was enough then for me to start writing the coldest city um and similar sort of thing with Brigitte in the uh, Exploria Code and Templars projects is, I was like, has there been a female cyber analyst in spy fiction? I don't think there has. Uh, that would be quite interesting. Um, and there are other aspects of the book and the technology in it and the character of Brigitte that particularly appeal to me and that I deliberately kind of, not designed, but that I gravitated towards to ensure that I would enjoy writing her for hopefully many books to come. Mm. Um, and anybody who knows me can probably see what those <laughs> aspects of her character are. And right. It's no secret. Um, but, but mainly it was, yeah, I've, I've never seen. Uh, the, the closest thing to Brigitte that existed before would be Lisbeth Salander. Yes. Uh, from you know, the Dragon Tattoo books. But of course, she's not a spy. She's not a no. government employee working as a spy. It's very different. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, that's specifically why Brigitte is a woman. But also, I frankly enjoy writing female lead characters. I've done it my whole career. I have been complimented on them from time to time by women. So I, I like to think I'm doing a pretty good job of it. Um, and the fact is that female lead characters are still underrepresented, certainly in thrillers, in a lot of fiction other than romances, obviously, you know, you take romance aside and they're still underrepresented in almost all forms of fiction, almost all genres. So, you know, I'll keep plugging away. Yeah. And, I, you know, as you explain it, I kept thinking back to this anecdote I heard applied to Martin Scorsese in the mid 70s he had just gotten done making mean streets and really kind of got his footprint settled and he transitioned from that to doing the movie alice doesn't live here anymore which oh i haven't seen that is the antithesis to mean streets it's a female focused really it's a landmark feminist film of the 70s and Ellen Burstyn plays alice and when they came to her and said here's the person we want to direct it she saw Mean Streets and went to Martin Scorsese and went, I don't think you understand women at all by looking at this movie. And Scorsese, to his credit, said, I don't think so either, but I want to learn. And they worked together and made that movie what it is. Wow. And I think that's the important thing of, you know, whoever you are and whatever your your creative outlet is and whatever you're channeling it into whatever create characters you're creating out of it it seems like as long as you can go into it with the understanding of yes this person isn't me and i don't represent this person as a creator but it gives you a chance to explore those avenues and create somebody that like you said can be relatable can be sympathetic and can be human i think that's what we're all looking for who whoever's whoever's the one that's turning the stories out as long as i can look at it at the end and go this is a human story that relates to me on some level or i can get a better insight into this world that i'm interested in through these characters i think that at the end of the day that's what we're we're all looking for i mean am i wrong here no i don't think so and i think the important thing as a creator is just and you made the point there with scorsese be open to learning you know, yeah. I am I am always learning more about my craft, about how to write better characters, about the things about which I write, be those 
be that technology or women's issues or, you know, anything, any of the areas that I touch upon in my work, I'm always learning new things about them. I never think, oh, I know all there is to know about such and such. I would never, I can't even conceive of thinking that about anything. I don't know anything about anything. I'm learning. I try to, I do my best. I would never put myself forward as any kind of knowledgeable expert on anything really, apart from being organized perhaps. Um, <laughs> but you know, in terms of, in terms of the sort of fiction, I would, yeah, no, it's, I know some writers who are a bit like that and I just uh, I mean not personally but I mean I know of writers who are like that and I have that attitude and yeah it baffles me it absolutely baffles me we have to be open to learning new things and understanding new experiences think of how different the world is now to how it was just 10 years ago mm-hmm. or even different... five right but I mean 10 years especially that's yeah like, yeah the last 10 years especially feels like a an absolute eon you mm-hmm. know um, you can't possibly hope to make affecting creative work if you don't understand that the world is changing and you must be aware of it and sympathetic to it. You can't know everything. You can't be on top of everything, of course, but that's part of it. Uh, you know, being able to say, I don't know everything. There are lots of things I don't know, but I am willing to learn. Um, you know, that's as a creator, I think that's all we really can do. Mm, absolutely. And, you know, I I could talk your ear off for another hour and a half. But, <laughs> you know, I, I so, Anthony, I appreciate you coming on and kind of sharing your journey and, and kind of where you've gone in the highs and the lows and then everything in between. So his name is Anthony Johnston. You can find more about his work at anthonyjohnston.com. Pick up his newest books, the Tempest project and the original book, the Exploring sure Code. It correctly. That's, yes. That's the important thing it's, you see. You make, you're going to make sure you got to spell it correctly. Yes. Anthony, <laughs> A-N-T-O-N-Y, Johnston, not Johnson. <laughs> so, but, Seriously, Anthony, thank you so much for giving me the time. I appreciate it, and I hope to talk to you again soon. But thank you for joining me for this skull session. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks for listening to this episode of Skull Sessions. You can find Anthony Johnston's work online at his website, anthonyjohnston.com, as well as Amazon or anywhere else you purchase your media. His latest book, The Tempest Project, is a sequel to his first Brigitte Sharp story, The Exforia Code, so if you don't want to jump in midstream, I recommend checking out the latter before the former. If you like the show or have any recommendations for how to make it better, please leave a review. Seriously, it really does help. And if you want to contribute to the show, you can at my Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash Devin J. Higgins. For as little as $5 a month, you can be a producer and have your name included here at the end of the show. You'll also get advance notice of upcoming shows and first crack at bonus content once I've been able to figure out just what that's going to be. All Patreon proceeds go towards keeping the show going and making it better through the purchase of new equipment, so I'll make sure your investment is well spent. Music for the show is provided, with permission, by my sister, Rowan Church. You can follow their band, The Crystal Furs, at crystalfurs.bandcamp.com. Their new album's in the works and set to come out later this year, but their full catalog's available, and if you're looking for new music to add to your catalog, give them a look. Skull Sessions is a presentation of Pressbox Productions, copyright 2021, all rights reserved. I'm Devin Higgins, thanks again for listening, and I'll be back next week with another Skull Session. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye.